The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, and the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. That was long, so I'm going to keep it short and pray. Dear Lord, especially for anybody who's new today, I hope that the sermon will include something that will really touch them the way that the first sermon touched us. Amen. Thank you. Short and sweet. It is a long passage today, um, 
but it's a good one, and I think it was worth reading the whole thing uh, to really grasp what God is doing here and, and what we can learn uh, through what's happening uh, as we locate this passage on the timeline of, of redemptive history and God's larger plan. You know, we've spoke, uh, spoken uh, the last several weeks in the book of Exodus about knowing God. It's been a constant theme that we've been hitting on. Uh, the book of Exodus really is about knowing God and experiencing God's presence. Uh, the Bible, you could even say, is really all about knowing God and experiencing God's presence. It's about God calling out a people unto himself and dwelling among his people that he might know them and be known. And so this morning, it's no surprise to us that this is the theme of our passage today. And the question that we're faced with is this, can God really dwell among his people? Can God really dwell among his people? And what we find in the very beginning of our passage is that the answer to that question is a resounding no. You see, the Israelites are at Sinai, and God tells them to go up to the promised land But as we see from our text, he says, I will not be present in the midst of you. I will send my angel before you, and he's going to drive out all the enemies. But I will not be present in the midst of you. And that's a problem. So so we have a problem here. And the problem we're faced with immediately here is that God cannot dwell in the midst of a sinful world people. You know, it's really interesting because when you read just a few chapters earlier in chapter 29, we see that that's exactly what God wants to do. That's his plan. Exodus 29, 45, he says, I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. And so in chapter 29, he's saying, my plan is to dwell among them. And in chapter 33, he's saying, I cannot dwell among you, lest I consume you along the way. What happened in between chapter 29 and chapter 33? The golden calf. The Israelites violated covenant with God by fashioning an idol out of the golden calf and worshiping it. And worshiping it. And if you think about it, what it's really painting a picture of, it is a reenactment in many ways of the fall of man. God's desire to have his presence among his people, giving them commands. They violate the commands of God, and the presence of God is gone. Relationship is damaged because of the sin. It's a picture of exactly what happened in the garden. And this is what idolatry does. God says, I will not have any other gods before me, which literally means any other gods in my presence. God's not going to hang out with us and our idols. The irony of this whole thing is hard to miss, though. They fashion this golden calf so that they can have a God who is present among them, and they lose the presence of the one true God and living God. You know, it's something that gets repeated even in our day. 
as we fashion idols so that we have something that with our five senses feels close and secure. Maybe it's a a job or money or sports, drugs, sex, a relationship, whatever. We put our hope in this thing, but then we end up empty in the end because not only does it not deliver, not only does it not bring lasting fulfillment, but in our rebellion, we're not receiving the refreshing of the presence of God, the fellowship with God that we can have. And so even in this beginning of this text here, we are learning something important. We are learning something about the emptiness and the seriousness of making something other than Jesus, our God, our idol. And so God refuses to go up with the people. He says, I cannot dwell in their midst. I will consume them in my holiness. And that's why our text goes on to say this right here in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which is outside the camp. You notice something about this passage. The author's really emphasizing this whole outside the camp thing. Moses takes the tent and pitches it outside the camp, far off from the camp. So that anyone who wanted to meet with God had to go outside the camp. God is not dwelling in the midst of his people. He is outside the camp. And says, I refuse to dwell in your midst. And the sad thing is, this arrangement that God is putting in place seems to kind of be consistent with the way that Israel wants to relate to him anyway. He says, hey, look, I'm going to send my angel before you. He's going to beat up all your enemies. He's going to take care of you and make sure you get where you need to go. But I can't be there with you. I will not be present with you. And if you see how Israel throughout Exodus seems to view God anyway, they they seem to like to keep their distance. Every time God shows up, it's, hey, Moses, you go talk to him and we'll go stand over here. And so they get the services of God without the presence of God. And you know, this is the essence of of man-made religion, isn't it? No genuine relationship, no experiencing of God's presence, but wanting the services of God, wanting the blessings of God, wanting God to do our bidding for us. It's being interested in God's things, but not in God himself. But we see Moses, in contrast, he is not okay with this arrangement. Our passage says this, starting in 15, it says, and he says to him, to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is, is it not in your going out with us that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. So Moses says, hey, you can't withdraw your presence. If you withdraw your presence from us, what really makes us different than everybody else? He remembers the nature of the covenant. The whole point of the covenant was God drawing a people out and being present among them that they might be a light to the nations, that the nations would be able to look in and see that the God of Israel really is the one true God. 
And he says, if you remove your presence, then what are we? What is this all about? There's no discernible difference between us and any other nation, any other people, any other religion. We learn something from this. Because this is also God's design for his church, right? That we would collectively be a temple where the presence of God dwells. This is what really makes us distinct from other religions. And if we don't have the presence of God in our midst, if we don't have his transformative power among us, then you know what happens? We begin to look a whole lot like just every other religion, don't we? We have our own sacred text and our own prescribed form of worship and our own missionaries out there spreading our doctrine. It gets hard to see what really makes us different because our key distinction is that God himself is here, meeting with us, meeting with, with those who don't know, a, don't know him, transforming people's lives. Without him, we're nothing. We're doing this for nothing. In the corporate sense, we should be praying as Moses did. Lord, we need you. We can't do this without you. We intercede as he did for the presence of God among his people. You know, 1 Corinthians 14 gives us this hypothetical situation that Paul presents of a non-believer walking into a Christian gathering and the gifts are being used and the spirit is moving and God is ministering to his people all in a healthy and in a proper way. And this person leaves and Paul says, what will he say? He will say, truly God is among you. And I don't think there's any better compliment that a church can get than when someone comes to your church and can tell that God is in attendance. We should long for that Long for this to be a place where people come and meet with God. And we see that. We see lives being transformed here. We have testimonies of people who are encountering the Lord. But this is something that we should continually pray for. We should be as horrified as Moses at the thought of God's people without God present. We want people knowing when they come in here that this is for real, that it's not just some other religion. So we treasure his presence. We ask for his presence corporately. But Moses doesn't stop there. He's not just interceding for the presence of God corporately. It's more personal than that for Moses. See, up until this point, he's saying, God, you need to be amongst us. I and your people, he says. But what he does here next is he transitions to a personal request. Moses wants to experience and know God personally. Look what happens after Moses makes intercession corporately. He says this. It's a brief request, but a powerful one. And Moses said, please, show me your glory. Now you'll notice as I said, he's not asking this for the people in this case. He's saying, show me your glory. Something God can do for him. 
and to understand this request because it is packed with meaning. It helps to consider the word for glory, the Hebrew word kavod. It's rendered glory here. And to help understand this word and what this request, what Moses is really asking for, I'm going to tell a story really quick. Let's say you live in a, a typical suburban neighborhood, okay? And you have a neighbor that lives behind you, and his name is Wilson, okay? You got Wilson, and he lives behind you, and he's a nice guy. He gives good advice. But even after knowing Wilson for years, after living next to Wilson for years, you think it's odd that you've never seen his whole face. And the fact that you can't see his whole face is actually just sort of symbolic of your whole relationship. You know that there's a lot that you don't know about this guy. But over time, one thing you have come to know is that he is incredibly rich. He doesn't live like it. He doesn't act like it. But you've seen him giving to people constantly. You've received financial gifts from him. You've come to just know that he's incredibly rich, but you don't really know how rich he is. You just have this thought that I know this guy has money, and his money has money. He is rich. <laughs> and so one day you approach him, and you say, I know you are a rich man, Wilson, but I don't really know how rich you are. I want you to show me the fullness of your riches. And so Wilson says, okay, come with me. And you get in his car and you drive out to this field somewhere and you see that this field has several massive silos. Actually, I was able to get a picture of them online. That's them right there. And so you go to the door. It's on the other side. You can't see it. You go to the door and you open it and a tidal wave of gold coins comes rushing out. And immediately, you begin to drown in money. And just before the money covers your head, Wilson shuts the door and stops the flow. And you are grateful in that moment because you realize this is just a fraction of this man's riches. If he were to open all of these on me at once, or even just this one, I would die. I wouldn't be able to handle it. The reason I use that illustration, by the way, I made that up, <laughs> so you know. The reason I use that illustration is because the word kavod in Hebrew means abundant riches or abundant wealth. It's used that way repeatedly in the Old Testament. And so what Moses is saying is saying, God, I know there's a lot about you that I don't know. I want you to show me the fullness of your riches, the fullness of who you are. Don't hold back anything. Let me see you exactly as you are that I may comprehend you. It's a wonderful request. It reflects something about Moses' heart. He desires deeper intimacy, deeper knowledge of God, but he doesn't know what he's asking, does he? He doesn't get what he's asking. If God were to grant this request as it is asked, Moses would be overtaken by a tidal wave of God's glory and killed instantly. 
And so God's response is interesting. Essentially, he says, I'll give you what you can handle. And our text goes on to say this. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God graciously promises to show Moses himself, but he says, my face shall not be seen. It's an act of grace that he says, I'm not going to give you more than you can handle. But the interesting thing to catch here is that God grants the request. Moses asks for deeper revelation, deeper intimacy with God. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you can handle. And I think it's just further proof that God wants to be known. He wants to make himself known. He wants us to ask him, God, show me your glory. Show me your abundant riches. I want to know you more. And so Moses ascends this mountain and he's waiting for God to show up. And I have to think, he's trembling. He he doesn't know what this is gonna be like. He has no clue what's gonna happen. He's just standing there knowing that this experience awaits him. Am I going to be overwhelmed with with terror? Am I going to be destroyed in the judgment of God? Am I going to be so just thrown off by his holiness or, or overcome by his holiness that I'm killed? And so he's standing there waiting and he hears this booming voice come down. The Lord, the Lord. And I imagine Moses just kind of stands up at attention when he hears those words. And then he hears this. A God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is how God reveals himself in this moment. I can't tell you how many times I've turned to this passage for comfort and encouragement because I have always found it highly significant That God doesn't start by proclaiming his wrath or his holiness or how big he is and sovereign he is. He starts by saying, I am a God merciful and gracious. I am slow to anger. He's not the overbearing parent who's just waiting to squash us the moment we make the slightest transgression. He is a patient father, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
You know, this has been so huge for me throughout my life because I've, I've struggled sometimes with a perspective of God or a perception of God that sees him as that harsh authority figure. And that probably comes from having harsh authority figures, parental figures in my past. And I projected those things onto God. Being reminded, though, of his grace here and his mercy and the fact that he does, as scripture says, sympathize with our weakness. He understands we are but dust. You know, God then goes on. I'm sorry, not there yet. When people get to know Christ, this is usually the first thing that they come to realize as well. The first revelation, uh, uh, the first thing that really overtakes people when they get to know God is not how wise or just or how big he is, although those things are true. When you meet someone who encounters Jesus for the first time, have you ever noticed almost always the first thing they do Say, man, I've never experienced a love like this before. I've never experienced a grace like this before. I never knew that I could be forgiven in light of all the things that I have done. It is the grace and the mercy that initially overwhelms people when they come to know God. So God is a God of grace, and he communicates that to Moses. The second half of God's self-revelation, he upholds his commitment to justice, which is also part of his goodness, and that's important for us to remember. He tells Moses, I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. Sometimes we see God's goodness as his grace and his mercy and his love, But then God kind of has this other side, almost like this yin-yang thing, right? God is proclaiming his goodness, but then at the end, he kind of slips in his dark side about how he still judges sin and is just and all this stuff. And God says, no, I'm showing you all my goodness. I am good, so I am just. I judge the wicked because I am good. So Moses experiences presence of God this way, a God who is merciful but also just, a God who is abundant in grace and forgives iniquity. And here's his response. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So the only thing Moses can do is fall on the ground and worship. And what we see is that as soon as he opens his mouth, as soon as he speaks, we see that he has the answer to the problem. The problem is that God cannot dwell among a sinful people. He cannot go up in the midst of the community, God says, because they are a stiff-necked people. They are stubborn and sinful. But Moses turns that around, turns that language around, uses the same thing that God says. He says, yes, we are a stiff-necked people, but because we're a stiff-necked people, we need you. In other words, the same sin that you justifiably judge and separate yourself from us because of, that's the same sin that causes us to need you so much. 
Because we're stiff-necked, please be in our midst, be in our presence. And then he says this, pardon our iniquity and our sin. This is the revelation Moses has on Sinai, that the answer is forgiveness. The only way to experience God's presence, the only way for God's presence to be among his people is to experience first the forgiveness of God. Moses is interceding for the forgiveness of God's people so that they can experience God's presence. And when we think of that, it's hard to miss the connection between what Moses is doing here and what Christ has done for all eternity. You see, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we see a passage that is directly linked to this on Sinai, what's happening here on Sinai. And this is what it says. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt can be translated tabernacle. And we have seen his glory, just as Moses saw the glory of God. He says, it says, we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just as God reveals himself on Sinai as a God of overwhelming grace, but also a God of justice. So we see embodied in the person of Christ. Jesus Christ came as God's presence among us, not outside the camp, tabernacled among us, embodying grace and truth. And it is at the cross, through the work of Christ, that we see how God is able to pardon sin, but yet also punish sin. See, I have to think Moses is wondering, okay, you are a God of perfect justice, You punish sin. You've already told us you can't even be among us or you're going to consume us for our sin. But now you're talking about forgiveness and pardoning our iniquity. How can both be true? How can you be perfectly just and perfectly gracious at the same time? And this is what we see in Jesus at the cross. At the cross, we see how mercy and justice come together At the cross, we see and experience exactly what Moses saw and experienced on Sinai. A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's exactly what we see at the cross. That those who put their faith and trust in Jesus receive his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that our sin goes unpunished. There's no such thing as an unpunished sin. It's not like God just threw our sin to the side and said, I'll forget about that. He's perfectly just and our sin had to be judged. So he placed that judgment upon his own son. And in doing so, God was able to uphold his perfect grace, which we experience, and also his perfect judgment, which was poured out upon his own son at Calvary. This is why God is able to be a God who forgives iniquity. Even in the situation of Israel at Sinai, this is why 
God is able to say to Moses, I am a God who forgives iniquity. Yes, they have sinned, but I forgive iniquity. And in closing, I just want to remind us this, that it all comes back to God's desire to be present in the midst of his people. The whole story, the cross, Jesus dying on the cross so the mercy and justice of God could be on display. It's all about tearing that veil, as Matt spoke about last week, the veil of the Holy of Holies that separates the presence of God from the presence of man. And at the moment Christ died, that veil was torn from top to bottom. God, able to now dwell among his people, be experienced by his people, fellowship with his people, This is a benefit that is provided in Christ only and through him. And so if you haven't received Christ's offer of forgiveness this morning, the first thing I want to do is invite you to put your trust in him. Confess your sin to him. Because apart from him, as we learn, we bear the penalty of our own sin. Apart from Christ, there is no access to God's presence. There is no inheritance in his kingdom. So come to him today if you don't know him. Look to him today and experience his grace and his forgiveness just as Moses did. Experience the life that only he can give, the joy that only he can give. As David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. For those who do profess the name of Christ, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, let's live in light of the work of Christ. Let's live like the veil has been torn. He died, he gave his life so that we might know and experience God. So let's not be like the Israelites who were content with keeping God at a distance, who sought to lay hold of God's benefits but never really wanted to know him. Let's be like Moses. Let's press in to know him more intimately. Let's make that request, show me your glory. Never forgetting that this is about relationship. This whole thing is about relationship. It's possible if we're not careful to be in a relationship where everything's happening except actual relationship. It can happen in marriage, it can happen in friendship, it can happen with God. We can go to church, we can go through the motions, stay busy, but if we're not careful, we neglect the heart of this whole thing, which is knowing God. And lastly, let's make sure we don't forget the importance of experiencing his presence corporately. It's his presence that makes us distinct. It's his presence that makes us unique. Stir up a longing within yourself and others to see the transforming presence of God at work among us. Let's make a point to pray for our gatherings that it would be a place that people come and meet with the Lord. Let us show people and be a witness of who God is to them as we serve and use our gifts, as we minister to people with love, as we lift our voices together in worship, that they would leave 
saying, truly God is among his people. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you that you went through such great lengths to know us and to be known by us. That you gave your own son to die for us and carry our sin so that we might have relationship with you both now and forevermore. That we might be your people, that you might be our God, and that you might dwell among us. Lord, I pray that this church would be a, a church that longs to see you moving in our midst. I pray that you would draw those who don't know you in this surrounding community and even beyond here to hear your glorious gospel, to experience who you are in community with others, to experience the transformation that only you can bring, that they would see that this is not just another religion or religious service, but this is for real, that God attends Infusion Church. Heavenly Father, help us to keep the main thing the main thing in our personal life, Lord. Help us to take time to spend with you, to get to know you, to seek you more intimately, Lord. We pray you grant that request as much as we can handle. Reveal yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us, O oh Lord. 